Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There are no words in either French or English that begin with ets, except for etc. Inexplicable and unexplainable both have Latin roots, and they still occupy the same lexical space. Coming up on Word Matters, spellings that reflect alternative pronunciations, and the unexplainable favoritism that is shown to inexplicable. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. A listener question about ECT, as used for the abbreviated form of etc., or rather, a version of that Latin phrase pronounced as etc., raises questions about other alternative spellings that develop to reflect non-standard pronunciations. I'll start our discussion off. Listener Michael wrote, in response to our segment on abbreviations, saying, I listened to this episode hoping all along that you would address ETC, the abbreviation for etc., with so many people pronouncing it etc. these days along with other words such as especially, the abbreviation has started to morph toward ECT. I see it all the time now. You could have killed two birds with one stone by correcting the pronunciation, along with the spelling of the abbreviation. So, what of that spelling and pronunciation of the abbreviated form of etc.? Well, Michael may be both heartened and disappointed. We don't include ECT as a spelling of the abbreviation in our dictionaries, but we do include the pronunciation ek, cetera. And it was added quite a while ago now, in 1993, for the Tenth Collegiate Dictionary. Doesn't surprise me at all. Why? Because I think even though Michael's attention to detail and care for language are laudable, I think there's also something else going on in his case, which is what we sometimes call the recency effect, which is that you notice something and then you start to notice it everywhere and you think it's new. But actually, this, I think, is something that's been going on for a long time. Yes, possibly. It could also be that it is becoming more and more common, yes. too. And that yeah. there's more non-professionally edited writing that we all encounter every day. Yes, absolutely. I think it is just so remarkable the amount of unpublished text that we see now as human beings and how Absolutely. completely unprecedented it is. We have never had so much access to the printed word. We're in a golden age of unedited prose. <laughs> look at it that way. We always try to look on the positive side. Now, in our dictionaries, the etc. pron is labeled non-standard. And by non-standard, we mean that we've got plenty of evidence of it in use but it's widely disapproved of. So it's a sort of warning to the reader that, you know, if you use this pronunciation, it's going to stand out to people. 
and people might think that you're saying it incorrectly. The dictionary is not saying you're saying it incorrectly, but the dictionary is saying that you are saying it in a way that is not the standard way of saying it. Here's an interesting thing. Our usage dictionary, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of English Usage, has an article on this pronunciation of etc. And it says that the variant pronunciation is common in both English and French mm -hmm. because of assimilation. Now, assimilation is a technical linguistics term. It means the change of a sound in speech so that it becomes identical with or similar to a neighboring sound. And we use assimilation in phrases all the time. So if you say his shoe, actually, I just said it, his shoe. But in running text, I would just say his shoe, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, the S is gone. It, it becomes kind of a zh sound instead of z and a sh. So that's this process of assimilation. And that is what's happening in the pronunciation, et cetera, et cetera. It's a more natural thing for our mouths to do. There are no words in either French or English that begin with ets except for et cetera. Oh, that's fascinating. But X is a very common way to yep. begin a word, right? Yep. We've got exciting, exception, except. Some of the most common words that we use start with that X. It reminds me of the nuclear nuclear problem where there is a common pattern like molecular. Cochlear is a little less common, but molecular, which has this scientific connotation uh, like the word nuclear does. But there are very few words that actually have that pattern. Right. Now, it's not that that one is so hard to say. We can say the word likelier, for example. Sure, sure, right? sure, sure. We can do that clear. But nuclear is this technical scientific term, like you say. And there are all these other scientific terms that have this euler mm -hmm. ending that sort of draws a word like nuclear to be nuclear. For these non-standard pronunciations, I sometimes call it like the pull of gravity. You're attracted like a magnet to something that you've heard before. Something that comes to mind is remuneration which has to do with money and the amount of money that's being paid. And so we want to see maybe that word number or numeral. So you often hear it as renumeration. In a way, there's a logic to that. It's just not what the word is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Remuneration still feels quite foreign. Yeah. But to be honest, most words in English still feel foreign to me as my <laughs> native language. So that's not so surprising. We have talked about folk etymologies before. A folk etymology is when a word is actually shifted in its form to become something more logical or more familiar. And that's definitely Absolutely. what is happening when you're talking about renumeration. The word chaise long, there's an alternate chaise lounge, and it's because long, L-O-N-G-U-E in English is not really very meaningful. But lounge certainly is, especially when you're thinking about a particular kind of chair. And it looks like it's for lounging. And we have a verb that kind of contributes to that. Chaise lounge, we've certainly talked about it and written about it. And there are a bunch of these. Hangnail is one of them. We ascribe a logic or we a post facto apply a logic to the spelling of these words. And this is a long way of saying that someone might be technically wrong with etc., for example. And it might get under your skin. It might bug you. But there's often a kind of logic behind these very common so-called errors, these non-standard approaches to phonetics and to spelling. The ECT spelling, which is one of the things that Michael was really objecting to, he's noticing this increase in the use of the spelling. And we do not yet include that in our dictionaries, ECT, as a variant spelling of the abbreviation for etc. But F. Scott Fitzgerald apparently used it in his writing. No kidding. Yeah. Published or unpublished? These were in letters, yeah. sorry, not in his published writing, except that it just means no editor was correcting him, right? It may be all throughout The Great Gatsby. 
I've noticed that there are a number of cases that have come up. Quite often, it's in the, the letters of F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> so I think he had a relaxed grasp on certain usage conventions <laughs> that people hold very important today. Right, a relaxed grasp on usage conventions. Yes, I like that. But clearly had mastery of the language. He's a very highly regarded writer for good reason. He knew how to use words to communicate very well. It just goes to show that you can write in what many people would consider to be substandard variants of English and still die a miserable alcoholic death. <laughs> but be read in high schools around the yes. country. Yeah, 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 that too. <laughs> There's another word that this thinking about, et cetera, made me think about, and that is the word expresso. Now, expresso, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-O, is included in our dictionaries with the same definition as espresso, E-S-P-R-E-S-S-O. So in this case, we actually include that spelling with the X. It has a pronunciation that matches it, expresso, and it's considered less common, but not non-standard. So that means it's frequent enough. And our evidence of both really starts to become significant in the 1950s. But they're both kind of bubbling up around the same time. Another one like this that you might think is an error is the word aluminium, which is really just the British way of saying aluminum. But we enter it at its own spelling, and we simply call it British. Although it may be like with remuneration, remuneration, some people think, ah, you're adding an extra syllable to this word. What was that other one where you add a syllable? Is it mischievous? mischievous? Yes, yes. I love mischievous. We include the variant pronunciation, mischievous, and we enter it as non-standard, but we don't include the spelling that kind of backs it up. I'm not sure how I feel about that. If I'm going to say mischievous, I'm going to spell it with an I-O-U-S. I got to say, I always thought that mischievous was itself a more mischievous form of the word than <laughs> mischievous was. It's an exemplar of itself, and so I think it deserves its own place based on that. Yeah, well, it's often used humorously, and it's got like this kind of playful nod to the word devious in it. Is it possible that British English speakers use that more frequently? It may be just my ears that I've caught it more frequently, but it's a fun variation, especially because of that devious harmonization that just brings this other idea kind of more actively into this word. But clearly, we're just having fun with these words. And I think that notion of non-standard, it's important to remember that's a usage label. And that usage in this case is what I call the manners of language. In other words, it's sort of there to help guide you to not embarrass yourself and not offend others. And it's true that you might be judged harshly if in professional writing or in a school paper that you present one of these spellings or pronunciations. You might be judged harshly by people who don't know you, for example. And we do find it comfortable to judge other people by their spelling. It happens all the time on Twitter. So that's why I call it manners. It really doesn't have to do with the word itself. It has to do with how the word is situated in the culture of understood standard spelling and publishing. I think that's a really great analogy, Peter. And if I could pursue it a little more, I think one of the things that's particularly useful about that is that just as with manners, there are degrees of usage that you may wish to adhere to. And in many cases, the question involved is roughly analogous to, have you used the correct fork for the salad. Yep. And in other cases, the question is more like, did you remember to put on pants before you <laughs> left the house today? These are both in some broad sense a question of manners, but some are more important than other ones. I think it's important and it kind of behooves us all to not confuse the salad fork with the wearing of garments when we leave the house. <laughs> Perfect. Here, here. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. Coming up, we explain inexplicable, or try. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Given a matter that cannot be explained, English speakers are far more likely to describe the matter as inexplicable than they are to describe it as unexplainable. But why? Peter will try to explain. We always seek logic in language. And one of the intriguing characteristics about English is that we often have a lot of words for kind of the same thing. And that isn't always logical when you think about it. That means they overlap. That means we have synonyms, of course. And that means also that we have registers or colors, sort of sophisticated designations of denotation and connotation. And that's what we're here for. I mean, that's what the dictionary does. But for example, we don't make a big deal about the differences between words like trusty and trusted, but we use them both. My trusty knife, a trusted friend. If someone were learning English, they would have to learn that particular sub-pattern of adjectives. And think of, in, in English, the fact that for something that is big, we have so many synonyms. We have huge and large and great and enormous and gargantuan and humongous and gigantic and ginormous. And there's so many of these things. And that's a sort of curious thing. I've always wondered why we have so many words for big things in English and not like pairs of them for small things. And one of these pairs that overlaps is unexplainable and inexplicable, which weirdly enough are semantically almost identical, aren't they? I mean, they sort of mean the same thing, not able to be explained. Right. Trusty and trusted, I would use in different contexts. Mm -hmm. But let's see, this distinction is unexplainable, it's inexplicable. I think those basically mean the same thing. Yeah, I think semantically, at least for the definition, it'd be hard to make a distinction. I think inexplicable is paired with the the strong possibility of blame in many cases. Oh, interesting. You wouldn't say the inexplicable decision you made to invite your brother this weekend. (laughs) That makes sense. You wouldn't say the unexplainable decision you made to invite your brother. It's inexplicable why you would say unexplainable. (laughs) I think I I would say unexplainable. I feel like inexplicable, at least in my idiolect, is paired with the soon forthcoming blame on some matter. So is unexplainable? Maybe that's a little more gentle. That's self-referential. It's unexplainable why I did something, but it's inexplicable why you did something. That's the distinction for me. Well, there's a kind of a neutral quality is what you're saying to unexplainable, which 
actually may be right. That's an interesting color. This is one of the things about English in particular, which is that English often has pairs of nearly synonymous words. Usually one has derived from Old English and one has derived from Latin or French. Think about doable and feasible or many and numerous or friendly and amicable. None of those are completely 100% overlapping in usage, but we all kind of squint and see, oh yeah, they kind of mean the same thing. This case is a little different because inexplicable and unexplainable both have Latin roots and they still occupy the same lexical space. So this is a kind of interesting thing. In other words, they grew up next to each other in parallel in the English language after the 13th century, you know, when these words kind of came into the language. But they don't have the same Latin root. No, right, exactly. So explain comes ultimately from planus or planus, which means flat. In French, the word for map is still plan, P-L-A-N, plan. And we do use the word plan. In some sense, you could say that plan is this ultimately figurative use of what was a piece of paper on the table that you were looking at. A literal plan, which was a map, a plan to go to the movies tonight, was really kind of a map for your evening, right? So there is something to that. But the Latin word planus, meaning flat, or the verb related to it, which meant to make flat or to make level, which meant to make plain, to make clear, to make understandable. It was figurative even in, in Latin. In Latin yes. then. And English, of course, has the word plain, right? P-L-A-N-E. And it comes from the same root. And it's also the tool plain that makes something flat for a carpenter. So that's an interesting root that has a lot of derivations in English. But explicable or explicate is the verb. comes from a different root, explicare. That's a, the verb that means literally to unfold, which is also a figurative way to say to make something clear or to make something easy to understand. You unfold it. And, oh, now I see the whole picture. And that gives you the reason or the cause for something. And this is the same root that gives us words like complicit or implicit or explicit. And when you think about the roots, complicit means folded together, implicit means folded in, and explicit means unfolded or folded out. So it's kind of an interesting etymological journey that you can take through these words. So explain is laid out flat and explicable is unfolded. Yes, unfolded in order to see all of it, in order to make clear. So the word complicate has that plick in there, the same as explicate. And complicate means to fold together. So if you're complicit, you're folded in with your co-conspirators. But if you complicate something, that's also folded something together. That's too many things together. It's just an interesting way that we use this plick array root. This is the P-L-Y word in English, like plywood, which has layers or levels or folds that you put together. So that's where all of those things come from. So we have these two words that have two different roots, both of which had a figurative use that meant to make clear. And that's kind of interesting. And that's only in the positive, though. We're talking about explainable and explicable. Placare gave rise to another very, very obscure word, which I think is only in the OED, which is inexplicant, I-N-E-X-P-L-I-C-A-N-T, which unfortunately, I have to say, means just giving no explanation. And I thought it would be nice if inexplicant referred to a person who could not be explained, kind of like a supplicant is a person mm. who supplicates. Inexplicant to me feels like it should mean an inexplainable person, but it doesn't. could also mean a person who refuses to explain. Even better. I like them both. We can do what we can. I think that sounds like the kind of word that was used by someone who is used to working in Latin or translating from Latin, like a scientist or a lawyer or a scholar of the 16th or 17th century. That sounds like a word that was sort of coined in English, but is really a Latin word. Does that make sense? That is entirely explicable. (laughs) 
So then we have these positive terms, explainable and explicable. They're both found in print in the 13th, 14th century. And what's harder to explain is that their predictable negations, so unexplainable and inexplicable, show wildly different usage patterns from the verbs that they were derived from. So to begin with, explain is much more commonly used than explicate in English. Let me explain this to you, or can you explain why you were late today? You know, that kind of thing. You would explain the rules of baseball, but you would explicate scripture, for example, or explicate a text. In French, explication de texte is the classical high school essay in which you illuminate your thoughts regarding something on the page. And it's that word explicate, unfold your knowledge, basically. But explicate is so specific and technical compared to explain. Right. You would never, for example, explicate why you invited your brother for the weekend. Right. But the fact that we use explain much more frequently than we use explicate, I believe, and this is just a theory, is why we attach un to explain. Because un is the old English form of the negation. In, I-N would be the Latin form. And so the reason we say unexplainable, so we have a Latin base with an Old English prefix, but that's because this word has essentially been anglicized or nativized by its very frequency. Because it's so common to use this word in English, it becomes comfortable like an old shoe, and you put it in with the Old English prefix. I think is an interesting crisscross of derivations. You say unexplainable because the word is so comfortable in English. I like that theory. I like that definition. I'm going to propose that under UN, we now revise that to the comfortable old shoe of negation. (laughs) Well, there is something comfortable about these old English terms. There tend to be the terms that we associate with hearth and home and with family. And of course, they're the function verbs of English, like make and do. They're all our swear words that if you burn your finger on the stove, that's what you're going to utter. They're the comfortable words and the words for members of the family and words like girl, and they just tend to be the homey words. And so they are more comfortable in that sense. But explicate, explicable uses in, I-N, inexplicable, which is that Latin prefix. The people who were writing in these times, we're talking about the 1400s sometimes, these were people who were almost certainly fluent in Latin themselves. They would have written Latin for scientific or legal reasons or bureaucratic reasons. And so they would have said, oh, this is the correct prefix for this word. It's, It's very easily explainable. The in would have gone naturally with something from explicare. And they would have known that. So then what we get is to measure which of these is used more frequently today. And I just used a very common corpus, one of our favorite corpora. That's the plural of corpus. The billion word corpus of contemporary American English, just to take a look. And basically explicable and explainable are used almost on par with each other in professionally edited prose. That doesn't mean around the house that you would say explicable as often as explainable. You probably wouldn't. But if you think about what a corpus is, it's often a lot of newspaper articles, often about government or international affairs or finance. And so it tends to be a more formal register of language anyway. So we find these two words to be roughly on par. But interestingly, unexplainable is used about twice as often as the positive explainable. But the real interesting thing is that inexplicable is used about 10 times as explicable or explainable is. And so what we find is, for whatever reason, English speakers really like this negative formation. Inexplicable. Inexplicable. It's far and away, in terms of published prose, the more common form. Let me just clarify. You said that unexplainable is also more common than explainable, but inexplicable is way more common than unexplainable or explicable. Yes, exactly. So for whatever reason, we like the negative forms of these words. 
And maybe there's a good reason for that. If you're writing something and it's edited and it's published, you've thought it through, and unexplainable or inexplicable, these are really good reasons. These are sort of fulcrums of arguments, aren't they? These are why you are writing about this subject in the first place, maybe, is that it's hard to understand. And so the fact that inexplicable, however, so far exceeds all of these other forms in print is itself a bit of a mystery. I mean, there's no real logic to this. It's just the way it is. Now, there are other negative terms that are far more common than their positive peers. So a word like ineffable or a word like irreconcilable or inextricable or irrevocable or unfathomable. You realize that we do have a kind of habit of using the negatives of these long kind of Latin words more frequently than their positives. Well, in some ways, I think it's because that's where the more interesting idea yeah. is. If something is effable, it's just understandable, yeah. right? You can talk about right. it. And that's not really interesting because most things are effable. <laughs> so the interesting thing is the thing that is ineffable exactly. and also with unexplainable and inexplicable. Maybe it's kind of like the way that we only define things or label things as substandard or non-standard now. And if it's standard, it's not worthy of designation. And if it's explainable, we don't need to take note of that. Only if it's lacking the ability to be explained or explicated. We sometimes say this term, hiding in plain sight. If something's effable, you've said it or you have the capacity to say it easily. There's no reason to draw attention to the manner in which you say it, for example. But ineffable, boy, that is a word that opens up all kinds of interesting ideas. And it's true that this is why language exists, to argue and explain. And so maybe that is the explanation of the fact that inexplicable is, a little bit surprisingly, the most common form of all of these terms. There's a, a lovely old obscure word, which I don't know even if anybody's defining it these days, which was infundus, which was, I think, defined as too odious to be spoken of, unfit for speech. <laughs> And I've seen it only in a few places, but I'm also fairly certain I've never seen fandus, the positive <laughs> form of it. Because why bother? If it's not too odious to speak of, then there's no need. These explanations are entirely fathomable. <laughs> Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey. For Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.